0: Father, thank you that you have given us Christ and that uh, he leads. We want to have it be true what we have already sung, Lord, that uh, where he goes will go and where he leads uh, will follow. And so I pray, Lord, that you would uh, enable us to, uh, to keep in step with our Lord and that you would, uh, by your spirit, empower us in the work that you've called us to. As we look now at your scripture, pray you would inform us of uh, the things that you want us to know about. Uh, We think about this upcoming sermon series, pray that you would stir in our hearts as a congregation, refine us more into what you want us to be as a church and as individuals. Pray also that you would bring uh, to the series, to church, uh, those months, those that uh, you're drawing to yourself and open up their eyes in fresh ways to see the hope of Christ. We pray, Lord, for the finances here. We want your gospel work to go forward unimpeded. And I, I pray, Lord, for those that uh, contribute so regularly and faithful. God, thank you for them. Uh, pray that you would help us all to get back into the irregular rhythms of giving so that uh, we can continue to meet uh, the needs here uh, that are required. And For those, Lord, maybe who aren't already contributing, pray that you would stir in their hearts uh, to the grace of giving and encourage them. And then, Lord, we also pray for the Amslers. Ask that you would guide them and that you would uh, bring them into just the right situation there in West Virginia with housing. Pray for Clayton's new job and for whatever uh, Heidi might be stepping into and looking for. Lord, we just pray for uh, your blessing upon them. We thank you for their ministry here, not only Heidi's ministry as a children's ministry director, but also, Lord, beyond that, uh, for their family's presence and the way that they've been a blessing to so many of us. So, God, we pray your blessing upon them. Bless us now as we look at your word, we pray. in Jesus, Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are wrapping up today our sermon series on Matthew, Jesus the Shepherd King. And uh, I was talking with Eric Rubio before the first service, and he reminded me that we began this sermon series in Advent of last year. So we've been going nine months. And I got to tell you, it hasn't felt too long. We're just all these different passages and parts of Matthew's gospel that we've had to to go fairly quickly past. And and, uh, nine months is not too long uh, to mine the depths of Matthew's gospel. But here we are in chapter 28 at the end of Matthew's gospel. But it's helpful to remind ourselves, to remember that Matthew's gospel, though it comes to an end, in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth and his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, That's the end of Matthew's gospel, but only the beginning, really, of the story of Jesus. At the close of Matthew's gospel, Jesus really is just getting started with what he came to earth to do. Mark's gospel perhaps catches this uh, most poignantly. If you turn over one page, if you're in Matthew 28 already where we're going to be, but if you turn over one page from Matthew 28 to Mark One, you'll see Mark begins his gospel account with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark doesn't mean the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then go to Jesus' birth. In fact, Mark starts his gospel in the middle of Jesus' life. What Mark is saying is that Jesus' life on earth, his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, that's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel story that begins with Jesus's earthly ministry extends out then into history. You and I are heirs of it through the proclamation of Jesus's story, his spirit living and active and working and building his church. And so the exciting thing about Jesus's story, which begins at the end of Matthew's gospel, is that it's our story as believers in Christ. We can be part of this story. If you're a Christian then, then perhaps like me, it's helpful to be reminded at times about this ongoing story of Jesus Christ, the part that we should and can play in it, and the way that it lays claims upon our life and also promises to be a blessing in our life. If you're not a Christian this morning, but you're considering being a Christian, then it's helpful for you to know the story of Jesus Christ that is being played out in the present. It's like a great river that is flowing, and you're thinking about putting your vessel into the river. You want to know where that river is going before you jump in. So what is this story that is being played out in the lives of God's people even now? And Beyond any individual impact that this story has in our lives, this ongoing work of Christ that began at the end of Matthew's gospel that continues now into the present is the justification for why we are gathered here together as a congregation. Calvary Memorial Church exists because of this story. So understanding what Jesus is about in the world, what he is trying to do, what he is in fact doing through his church and his people is a way of not just helping us as individuals reorient our lives, but helping us as a congregation reorient our communal life together. So, our text today is Matthew 28. It's the last chapter in Matthew's Gospel, the one that we haven't read yet. And so, uh, if you would grab a Bible and make your way to Matthew 28, we're going to read it together in just a moment. But, Matthew 28. Uh, recounts not only the resurrection of Jesus in verses 1 uh, through 10, and then we have a little uh, moment here where some report goes out in 11 through 15, but we also have at the end of Matthew 28 what is rather famously known, at least in Christian circles, as the Great Commission. It's Jesus' final words to his disciples. It's the commissioning of a mission on, that he is about to send them on. And so Matthew closes his gospel account of Jesus's ministry with this great commission. And that's where we're going to focus our attention this morning. As I've said, that the great commission is being worked out even now in our lives. We're going to look at three aspects of the great commission, the nature of the great commission the priority of the Great Commission, and the promise of the Great Commission. So Matthew 28, if you've got a copy there, why don't you stand uh, in honor to God's Word. I'm going to read all of Matthew 28. You follow along. If you don't have a Bible, you might be able to find one there in the pew rack in front of you, page 835, Matthew 28, one through the end of the chapter. "'Then go quickly and tell his disciples "'that he has risen from the dead. "'And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. "'There you will see him. "'See, I have told you.' "'So they departed quickly from the tomb "'with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. "'And behold, Jesus met them and said, "'Greetings.' "'And they came up and took hold of his feet "'and worshiped him. "'And then Jesus said to them, "'Do not be afraid. "'Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, "'and there they will see me.' "'And while they were going, "'behold, some of the guard went into the city.' So we'll focus most of our attention on Matthew 28, 16 through 20, the Great Commission, but a few comments here about these earlier texts. Jesus, we saw a number of weeks ago reading through Matthew 27, Jesus beyond all expectations of his followers has died. The Messiah, the great teacher of God, the one sent by God, the the Christ, the Son of God, The disciples believed him to be the one, and he died. Though Jesus had told them, he had warned them, he had said this was going to happen, they were not prepared for it, and beyond all expectation, he dies. But now, beyond all expectation, he's alive again. And again, Jesus had told them that not only would he die, he told them that he would rise, but they have not understood. They don't understand really until now, until the resurrection just exactly what it all means. So Jesus has risen from the dead. The women go to the tomb on the first day. They don't see Jesus at first. They see the angel. And the angel says to the women, come and see, this is where he was laid, and then go and tell. And I noticed as I was reading through 28, 1 through 15, there's a lot of going and telling going on here. The angel says to the women, go and tell, Jesus' disciples, what you've seen. Go and tell that He's not here, that He's risen from the dead. And then as the women are on their way to tell the disciples, they run into Jesus. And Jesus likewise says, go and tell. Go and tell the disciples. Well, the guards, the women aren't the only one that have seen something rather unusual. The guards that were appointed by the tomb to make sure that the disciples didn't come and steal the body and pass along a rumor that Jesus had risen from the dead those guards run, and they go tell the chief priests what has happened, which is to say he rose from the dead. The chief priests, of course, say, don't go tell. They don't want anyone to know about what's happened. They say, don't tell. Tell this other story instead. Interestingly, as a kind of a parenthetical sermon. This is going to be a little mini sermonette for those uh, that maybe need to hear this word. But interestingly, in this verses 11 through 15, this exchange between the guards and the chief priests, Do you note that the chief priests knew that Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead. That's why they had the guard appointed, because they wanted to prevent any kind of like nefarious activity by the disciples to perpetuate some myth about Jesus rising from the dead. When the guards show up and tell the chief priests what had happened, the chief priests believe the guards. You got that? You notice that? They believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. But their response is not to subject themselves to Jesus, but rather to cover it up. They don't doubt, but they refuse to worship. Then you go forward a few verses and you get to the disciples themselves. Jesus shows up on the mountain. They come to him as Jesus has directed them. And in verse 17, you have, and when they saw him, meaning the disciples that have just worshiped him, some doubted. The disciples still, some of them don't know what to make of what's happened. They're filled with confusion. They're not quite sure what's going on, but they worship him. So here you have the chief priests who don't doubt, but refuse to worship And then you have the disciples, some of whom are filled with doubt, but go ahead and worship anyway. And I think there's a little sermon there. There's a little lesson there. Maybe this is a word for someone today. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to make sense of it all. Who among us really has made sense of it all? But a posture of worship without certainty is better than a posture of certainty without worship. So maybe this morning you're trying to figure it all out. Let me encourage you. Just enter into worship. Enter into worship. You don't need to put all your doubts to rest before you enter into the worship of Christ because certainty is no guarantee that you are going to find the path to Jesus. Worship is how you find the path to Jesus. But in any case, we've got this telling, this don't tell, all this telling bit, and it all reaches its culmination in the Great Commission when Jesus commands his disciples to go tell the world about what they have been told. The angels tell the women to go tell the disciples. Jesus tells the women to go tell the disciples. The disciples have been told that Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus shows up validating the message that they have been told. And Jesus says, what you've been told, go tell the world. And then we are given the Great Commission. So three things about the Great Commission that I want us to really be thinking about this morning. The nature of the Great Commission, first, if you're taking notes, the nature of the Great Commission, everyone can participate. The nature of the Great Commission, everyone can participate. Jesus calls his disciples together on the mountain. He reasserts his authority over all things. He says, all authority has been in heaven and on earth, which is all authority. There's no other authority beyond that. It's all been given to me, Jesus says. Based on this authority, I am sending you out now into all of the world, to baptize people into the hope of Christ, the hope of resurrection, and to teach them to live according to how I've taught you to live. So I'm sending you out now into the world to baptize people for the forgiveness of sins, for the hope of new life, to bring them into the covenant, and then having brought them into the covenant. I am commissioning you then to teach them to live into all the ways that I've taught you to live over these past three years. So Jesus sends out then the disciples to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, insofar as the Great Commission is a sending mission, sometimes we can think of the Great Commission as only a mission for the evangelists or perhaps the missionaries among us, those with with a pioneering spirit, Certainly is true that the Great Commission is a sending mission and it's a mission that engages those with a special call or special gifting of evangelism or missionaries who are sent out into places that haven't yet heard the gospel or that are underserved with gospel witness definitely that is true and that's the baptizing aspect of the mission Right? to take the message of the gospel to those that haven't heard, that are outside the covenant of grace, and then bring them in. Baptism is an entry rite. It's the, the way of marking the passage from being outside the covenant to inside. So when Jesus sends his disciples out to baptize, he's sending them out to make converts. But he's not just sending them out to make converts. Notice the holistic nature of the Great Commission. It's not just to convert people into the way of Christ, But making disciples means teaching people who have been converted into the way of Christ how to live and instructing them to live into the way of Christ. So making disciples includes both evangelism and then growing up in the faith. It's a holistic mission to which Christ commissions his disciples. And that's good news for all of us average Christians because it means that all of us have a part to play in this mission. Some of us, of course, are uniquely gifted at evangelism or we're uniquely called to serve in missions or in foreign fields, great. If that's the call that the Lord has placed upon your life, then you should get after it and you should make good use of the gifts and the opportunities that the Lord has placed upon you. But the Great Commission isn't only for those who have evangelistic or pioneering or missionary impulses or gifts. The Great Commission is for all of us who can help raise people up into a further understanding and obedience to Christ. Some of us are gifted at teaching, explaining things. Others are gifted as shepherds, caretakers. We have gifts of mercy or helps or gifts of administration. And that's the teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you part Of the Great Commission. Whatever your gifting is, whatever your context, each of us can engage in the Great Commission from wherever we are. It's not just for the elite, the few, the professionals, but all of us can engage in the Great Commission with whatever capacities and gifts the Lord has placed upon us. For most of us, in fact, engaging in the Great Commission probably is not going to mean leaving our lives behind. It may mean that for some of us, It has meant it for some of us who have left Calvary in years past and recently gone on to different foreign mission fields, leaving behind what would be considered the normal life, right? It means that for some of us. But for the majority of us, it doesn't mean that, most likely. For the majority of us, it means not leaving our life behind, but bringing the whole of our lives, our relationships, our occupations, our hobbies, our passions, under the sway of Jesus' call to go and make disciples so that all that we're about in what might seem everyday life is subjugated and brought under the lordship of Jesus' call to make disciples. Because the Great Commission is more than just making converts— And because it's more than just making converts, it means that every aspect of our life can be and should be part of how we are pointing others to Jesus and encouraging and teaching them to live as Jesus asked us to. So we all are engaged in different aspects of life for different seasons of life. This might be a season right now in life where you are principally home with children and the 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 glamour of that wore off years ago perhaps right and it can be easy to to lose sight of the fact that that can very in a very real way, be great commission activity. That the way that you are raising your children and teaching them to honor God and to honor each other, to love God, love neighbor, to live into the way of Christ, that is great commission activity. That is being obedient to the command that Jesus has given to us as his disciples to teach people how to live into the way of Christ. Perhaps your primary uh, you're, you're, the way that you spend your days is in the marketplace or the trades, and you are working hard to, to do your work with integrity and excellence and, and not cut corners, not compromise, to treat the people around you, both your coworkers, your employer, your customers, uh, with, with, with deference, with respect, with respect. Uh, as those made in the image of God, you take opportunities as the occasion arises to speak of the hope that you have in you. That is great commission activity. That is doing the thing that God has called you to do by modeling and speaking and teaching people what it looks like to live into the way of Christ. Perhaps you're a student, and whether it's high school, grade school, perhaps college, And you think about your vocation as a student through the lens of Christ's call upon your life. And you think about what it means to do your work with excellence and to honor your peers and to, and, to, and to set your trajectory in your studies towards a way of honoring Christ. That is great commission activity to the degree that you take opportunities to speak of the good news of Christ and how he orients your life and to the ways that you defend those and speak on behalf of those perhaps who aren't being treated fairly. All these aspects are of our lives, home, work, school, our neighborhoods, our families, all of these can be brought under the sway, under the rubric of Jesus's command to go and make disciples. Everything we're about as people can and should be done in view of the Great Commission. My grandfather uh, was uh, a deep man of faith and in many ways uh, has served uh, as a model for me. He Uh, Was a missionary here in the United States to uh, rural parts of the country that didn't have a church. And uh, he moved from doing missions work in the field to running the mission agency uh, that had sent him, did that for many years. And then he went from there to serve as a Bible college president out west for a number of years. He came back to Chicago and pastored a church here in Chicago that I grew up in. So I had the opportunity to to attend church that my grandfather pastored. And then he left from there to go up to another church in Wisconsin to to minister in that congregation. And from there, he retired into semi-retirement back into the mission agency he had served at and uh, served as a president emeritus. And he did that until my grandmother's health failed uh, through congestive heart failure, and he moved back up here uh, into the Chicago area to be my, by my parents and minister to my to my grandmother. And in the last years of his life, he had survived. He had survived uh, all but one of his children. My grandmother had died. He was living uh, in a retirement home. Uh, in displays by my parents, and then his health failed significantly enough where he couldn't care for himself, and so my parents brought him in to their house. And all the productive things that he had done through his life, so much an example to me. And it might seem, in telling that story, that, that as I think about how did he shape me? How did he instruct me? How did he teach me to walk in all the ways that Jesus has taught us to walk? And I could go back and I could think about perhaps maybe some sermons that I had heard when I was in grade school, although candidly, I didn't remember many of the sermons that he preached when I was in grade school. Uh, But I I could think about that or the example of faithfulness. but, But the thing that probably in his legacy that has marked me the most is when he got to the end of his life, after he had done all of these things throughout his career, so faithfully, so faithfully, so fruitfully too, he got to the end of his life and his mind was starting to slip a little bit. He just couldn't, couldn't hang on to thoughts like he had. He was a tremendous learner, tremendous reader, but he couldn't, couldn't hang on to thoughts anymore. He couldn't teach anymore. He couldn't get out much anymore at all because of his health failings with the walker and his family, all except my mom had passed already, outlived most of his siblings and his friends. To get to that place in life and then to be living at my parents' house. I remember walking in one Saturday morning, and he was sitting at the dining room table, and I said, Grandpa, I said, how are, how are you doing? And he said, well, he's a big smile on his face. He said, I got my bowl of cereal, the sun's shining, and your parents are taking care of me. Life is good. Life is good. And he was just full of gratitude. I would say his whole life he was full of gratitude to be full of gratitude at that place in life, when all that you've held onto, all that you've invested in, has now slipped from your hands like sand. And all you have is thankfulness for how God has blessed you. And when I think about his legacy, and I think about the impact and how he has taught me to live into the ways of Jesus, I think of that moment. So, you think about what you have to give to God, and it may not seem like much. And in some ways, it's counterintuitive to think that all the years that my grandfather had ministering, able-bodiedly, faithfully serving the Lord, but the thing that he bequeathed to me was that one moment of weakness at the breakfast table. You may not have much. You might not have much. But offer to him what you have because he can use it to bless others. He can use it to take people and encourage their faith and to cause them into knowing the way of Christ more deeply and more fully. Think about Jesus' story or the story told of Jesus earlier in Matthew's gospel of how he's given just the few loaves and the few fish. That's what Jesus does. So where you're at in your life, I don't know. What you have to offer him, I don't know. But I do know that if you offer to him what is yours, the little bit that it might be, he can take that and he can turn that into great commission fruitfulness if it's done in sincerity and faith. The holistic nature of the great commission, the baptizing and the teaching through word and through example, this clarifies what our calling is in life. All of us can participate in it. All of us have something to offer. Little, much, great or small, all of us have something to offer. And the holistic nature of the Great Commission, both the baptizing and the teaching, not only clarifies the call that we have in our own lives as individuals, but it also clarifies the call that we have as a congregation. What are we to be about as a church? What is the purpose of us gathering together every week as Calvary Memorial Church? What are we doing when we come together Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? Are we proclaiming the gospel and inviting people into the waters of baptism? We are saying to those outside the covenant, come in. Come in because there's hope here, there's love here, there's grace here, there's mercy here, there's forgiveness here. If we're saying that, then we are engaging as we should in Great Commission activity. And are we as a congregation teaching people how to observe the way of life that Jesus has laid out? Do we gather week after week to remind ourselves to be be kind and to be merciful and to study God's word and to hope in his return? Are we teaching each other to live into the ways that Jesus has taught us to live? If we are, then we are doing Great Commission activity. Whatever we're about as a church needs to have intentional ties back into these two aspects of the Great Commission, the baptizing and the teaching to observe. This is most incumbent upon our pastors and our elders to ensure that this is happening, but it's incumbent upon all of us who say that this is our church home so that as people wander into this congregation, all of us have some sense of obligation to be a blessing and a conduit through which the Great Commission flows into the lives of those who attend here and those who may be visiting here, that we are called by God as a church to be engaging in baptizing and teaching, reaching out and blessing those that are part of our congregation. That's why we do small groups. That's why we have block parties. That's why we have children's and student ministries. That's why we have greeters and ushers at the back door. I think one of the places where churches can lose their way is they have the programming in place, but they've forgotten the purpose for which that programming exists. And then we're just having block parties to have block parties, and we're having small groups to have small groups, and we have youth group on Tuesday nights just to have youth group on Tuesday nights. But we don't do these things just to do these things. We do these things because we want people who don't know the hope of Christ to come to know the hope of Christ, and we want people who have embraced the hope of Christ to grow up in the hope of Christ. That's why we do the things we do, and that's why we're gathered together as a church. And that involves all of us, not just those who are on the paid staff. Amen? So the nature of the Great Commission is that it's for everyone. Everyone has something to contribute to this call that Jesus has placed upon his people. The priority of the Great Commission, this is the second thing, the priority of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not optional for a follower of Christ. Turn back in your Bible just a few pages, a few chapters to Matthew 25. Pastor Eric preached on Matthew 25, and when he did, I asked him to stay away from verses 14 through 30 because I wanted to bring him to bear here. So Matthew 25, uh, if you recall, is the passage where Jesus talks about or he's answering the question asked to him by his disciples, what will it be like at the end of the age and your return? So in Matthew 24 or 25, what Jesus is doing, he's answering that question. What it's going to be like before he comes back and what it will be like when he comes back. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells three parables. He tells the parable of the ten virgins and foolish ones who don't have any oil for their lamps and are left out of the wedding, tells the story of the parable of the talents, which I'm gonna refer to in just a moment, and then he tells the parable of the sheep and the goats. And these are all meant as parables given to Jesus' disciples to make them ready for when he comes back. Jesus says earlier in Matthew 24 that blessed is the servant who is found doing the master's will when the master comes home. So Jesus wants his disciples to know what they should be doing while they wait for him to come back so that when he comes back, we can say we've been doing the master's will. Now, as I read Matthew 25, I'm going to read this parable, 14 through 30. It's a parable you no doubt have heard before if you've been around church for a while. As I read this parable, I want you to listen for the parallels to Matthew 28, right? Because this parable is told in light of and anticipation of Matthew 28. Listen for the parallels. Parallels. For the kingdom of heaven, the return of the Son of Man, Jesus says in 25:14, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. And he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. his master said to him, "'Well done, good and faithful servant. "'You've been faithful over a little. "'I will set you over much. "'Enter into the joy of your master.' "'And he also who had received the one talent "'came forward saying, "'Master, I knew you to be a hard man, "'reaping where you did not sow "'and gathering where you scattered no seed. "'So I was afraid. "'And I went and hid your talent in the ground. "'Here you have what is yours.' "'But his master answered him, "'You wicked and slothful servant. "'You knew that I reap where I have not sown "'and gathered where I scattered no seed.' then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will be given, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. From, From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You catch the parallel. In the parable, Jesus tells again, to prepare his disciples for his return. He says, it's like a master who calls together his servants, gives them a job to do, goes away, comes back, and then takes an account of whether they've been busy doing the job. That's what's happening in Matthew 28. Jesus is calling his disciples together. He's giving them a job to do. He's going away. And he's going to come back, and he's going to expect that we have been doing the thing that he asked us to do. And the parable in Matthew 25 is a parable that is not only meant to instruct about what we should be doing, but all of the parables in Matthew 24 and 25 are also meant as a warning for those who claim the name of Christ, who say that they belong to Jesus, who say that they are his servant, but neglect to be ready for his return by neglecting the mission to which he has called them. It does not go well, needless to say, for the servant that buried his talent under the ground. And to say this candidly, but gently, there is no room in heaven with a door marked outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That servant didn't get, like, less jewels in his crown. He got sent to hell. And it's not to say that the way that we make it to heaven or that the way that we become a Christian is by engaging in the Great Commission. But it is to say that those of us who say we belong to Christ will be judged, the the reality of that truth will be judged at the day of judgment by whether we have given ourselves to the cause of Christ. And it will not work on the day of judgment to say, Lord, Lord, when we haven't done his will. That is so much of Jesus' emphasis in his parables when he speaks about his coming return. That is those who do his will that belong to him. So the reality of our faith, the veracity of whether or not we really belong to Jesus as his disciple is made evident in the way that we orient our lives around the mission to which he has called us to. Our faith must not be reduced to personal morality and church attendance while we pursue as our principal passion a sanitized version of the American dream because this is what happens if we are not careful. We keep our nose clean, we show up in church, but we pursue some other mission in life. And we want to bring Jesus along to kind of bless it But the reality is that what we're concerned about and what we're living for isn't his kingdom. And it's not building his people. It's not baptizing and it's not teaching. It's not bringing the hope of the gospel to those that need to hear it and raising people up and confirming them in the hope of the gospel. It's some other agenda. And our faith must not be reduced to personal morality and church attendance while we pursue as our principal passion some sanitized version of the American dream. Amen? God has, through Christ, laid upon us a mission, a mission to which we all have capacity to be engaged. Whether we're one-talent Christians, two-talent Christians, five-talent Christians, whether we're in the prime of our productive years or we're at the end of our life, all of us have something to offer. And if we would make this mission our central mission, we show ourselves to be true followers of Jesus Christ. So the nature of the Great Commission, first, is that it's for everyone. The priority of the Great Commission is that it's not optional for those that are truly followers of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the promise of the Great Commission. It is the pathway to experiencing the presence of Christ. You know it at the end of Matthew's Gospel, the way he closes it out with the words of Jesus. Jesus has just given his charge to go out into all the world. But then this is the last thing he says. Jesus says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always to the end of the age. When you are out doing the thing that I have asked you to do, I am with you in that. Jesus promises to be with us as we engage in the Great Commission. He is already working. He has already been working for 2,000 years. This is why the story of Jesus didn't end with Matthew's Gospel, but really began with the end of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus has not been waiting for us to show up to begin his work in the world. He has been working in the world. He is already on the field of harvest, living and active and changing lives. And Jesus' invitation into his work in the Great Commission isn't just another duty for us to perform, another obligation, another thing that we have to do as Christians. Jesus' invitation into the Great Commission is an invitation into his presence. If we want the presence of Christ, then we need to go to him, to where he is working, where he is actively producing fruit. I think there are many reasons why we may not sense the Lord's presence in our lives. And not all of them have to do with us. Not, it's not always because we've, we're harboring sin or we're not doing something that we should do. I think that we go through seasons of life where the Lord's presence seems to recede to the background and he's teaching us things in those moments. But sometimes we don't sense the Lord's presence, not that we don't sense the Lord's presence because we've failed to engage in his mission in the world. Could it be that some of us, for some of us, our spiritual lives have dried up because we have ceased to prioritize Christ's mission in the world? We no longer think of our marriages or our children or our work or our neighborhood or our hobbies or our passions as related to the mission of Christ in the world. We're leading bifurcated and compartmentalized lives. And what we do as Christians is what we do on Sunday mornings and kind of a bare sort of acceptable morality. But we've long since ceased to think about our home and our work and our hobbies as all avenues for Great Commission activity to work. And so we've truncated the, the mission of Christ down to a very narrow scope of our life. And in doing so, we've truncated the presence of Christ down to a very narrow scope of our life. Let me challenge each of us to reassess the priority of the Great Commission, not merely as another Christian duty, another hurdle to leap over, another obligation to fulfill, but as a pathway to blessing. As a pathway to blessing, do you want to experience the fullness of Christ's presence? Do you want to even now, even now, enter into the joy of your master then go to where he is. Get on the field. Don't sit on the sidelines. This is the beauty of Matthew 28 over and against the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, in the parable, the master goes away and he comes back. And in Matthew 28, the Lord goes away and he comes back. But even while he's away, he's with us. That's the promise of Matthew 28. That Jesus is with us while we're doing the thing that he's asked us to do. So in Matthew 25, the master takes his joy with him on the journey and brings his joy back at the end. And the servants can't enter into the joy of the master until the master returns. But in the real story, Jesus is here present with us, and his joy is present with us. And so when we enter into his work, we enter now into his own joy. Engaging in the mission of Christ should not be seen as drudgery. It should not be seen as just mere sacrifice or the abandonment of all hopes and dreams. It is entering into the fullness of the joy of the Lord who is actively working even now in this world. If we want to experience the fullness of Christ's presence, then we need to go to where Christ is working. All throughout Matthew's gospel, he emphasizes Jesus's language of taking up our cross and the pattern of the way that Jesus took up his cross, or losing our lives in order to find them, or dying to ourselves in order to gain our lives. It's this counterintuitive sense that, that the path to blessing is through letting go, through sacrifice, through entrusting ourselves to God's care in spite of what might seem wise to do to the contrary. The invitation to pursue Christ's mission in the world, to engage in the Great Commission is the priority of our lives. This invitation is just another way of saying the same thing. It is by dying to our missions in the world. Whatever missions tempt us, we let go of those missions in the world and we embrace Christ's mission. And it is embracing Christ's mission that we find the blessing and the joy and the presence of Christ. And this is what we need to be not just about as individuals, but this is what we need to be about as a congregation. Do we want the spirit of Christ to move powerfully and meaningfully among us? Do we want that as a church? Then we need to engage in his work together as a church. So let us be about his work working together and as God enables us towards this common vision so that we might experience the blessing of Jesus upon us. Amen? Father, thank you that you have given us your son and that in giving us your son, you have given us a mission in the world. You have called us to so much more and so much better than just pursuing things that in the end can never satisfy things that just rust and rot and leave us empty if we trust upon them or lean upon them. But you have given us, Lord, a mission that we can participate in that allows us to experience the fullness of the joy of the Son. What a privilege, what a blessing, Lord. So God, I pray you would help us to, in fresh ways this morning, to turn our thoughts and our hearts to how you would have us give of ourselves whatever we have. Some, it's a lot. Some, it may not seem like much. But whatever we have, that you would allow us to give what we have to you for your cause to, to turn into great commission fruitfulness. Lord, we want to be used by you because we want to we experience your presence in its fullness and know your joy. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.